Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you all this morning. Even though it's rainy, I'm glad you braved the weather to be here. We have a good story today that we are going to jump into. I know. It's a good one. Lots of babies in today's story. Um, so I'm going to start with, last week we spent a few minutes at the beginning of class talking about the Lenten podcast. I want you to know that although I was obviously involved in you know, getting that together, I have actually started to look forward to it each morning. Um, they're good. And I, you know, I kind of, I hope they would be. <laughs> but I really, I have really liked them. If you are still having trouble getting the podcasts, then please stick around after. I actually have a little time after class today and will be happy to help you with your devices find them. Um, I will say that a number of people have written to me to say that they just stream it right off our website. It is just easier than actually using the apps on their phones. And so either way, it works. They pop each day, um, a little clarity. It is weekday, not daily. We had a lot of people freak out on Saturday. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And we had to say, no, it's, it's Monday through Friday. And I love it. It has been, the total listens we have at this point is something like over 5,000. Um, and so it's really engaged a lot of people. Um, and I think the kind of simplicity and the habit of it, I hope will continue. And so if you haven't done it yet, I'm going to say it again on Sunday, but I actually think they're good. Um, and you know, we do a lot of really good things around here. This I think is something special. And so I hope that if you haven't yet plugged in, you will go off and find them um, because I think it will be meaningful for you. So let's open with a prayer and we will get started. Oh, do you know, hey, Monica, are you still there? Would you please get my notes off the printer? Cause I didn't. Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's start with a prayer and then we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks. Thanks for bringing us together. Thanks for the gift of this life. Thanks for giving us hopefulness and vision and confidence and courage for the future. We ask that even though we face so many wonky things in our news and in our world today, that we keep our eyes focused on you that we know that even though this world tries to scare us, that our faithfulness rests in you alone, and that together we can face anything that this world throws at us. Bless our friends who cannot be here today, especially those who need your healing touch the most, that they will be supported, and that we will make sure to show them your love each day. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have got one question I want to grab before we get into the lesson. So this is a, a relatively short question. Thank you. And the short question is are, the is, are the Israelis using God's covenants and promises from the Old Testament to defend settling on Palestinian land and choosing not to share Jerusalem with their neighbors? So we're going to start with a softball question this morning. Um, so this is a very good question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to not go into politics, but I am going to go into the idea of chosen because chosen matters. Much of what is, you may argue, a Zionist perspective, a modern Zionist perspective 
is rooted in this idea of chosenness. So we know in the Old Testament, there are multiple moments along the way where the Israelis, but really the Jews, are chosen by God, God's chosen people. We aren't going to look at it in Genesis, but in Exodus, when the Israelis come to the uh, Mount Sinai, they actually become Jewish. So at this point, when we're talking about Abraham and his descendants, they are not Jews yet. The idea of Judaism is formed when Moses receives the Ten Commandments and they begin to build these ideas and laws around the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai out in the wilderness. So for now, they're Israelis. Fast forward, what has happened in Israel in the modern age is something that is rooted in this idea that God chose the Jewish people somehow separately from any other people. And that chosenness gives them some kind of identity that is at least different, but for many, better or special or privileged or whatever words you want to use. This is obviously a messy issue because there are so many things that go into this beyond just the religion. But what Jesus does in the New Testament is he wrestles with this idea of chosenness. And even though Jesus does not make this as explicit as might be helpful, the way I understand Jesus's message around chosenness is that the Jewish people were never chosen in the sense that they are better than. They were chosen in the sense that they became the vehicle or the mouthpiece or the hands and feet of God in the world in order to bring everyone to God. That is why they were chosen. They, however, did not quite grasp the magnitude of that chosenness. And so I would argue that Jesus's primary message is that the boundaries, the rules and the laws that the Jews put around themselves is where they went wrong. They weren't bad people. They weren't doing something that made them evil or anything. They had just simply received the chosenness and misunderstood the responsibility of being chosen. And instead, they defended themselves as chosen. Does that make sense? And so Jesus said, hey, listen, you, you, God's real and God has come to you and God has given you a true word and way to be in relationship with him, but you've got to bring everyone else in. And so fast forward to Jesus's ultimate resurrection ascension, his followers take that idea out of Jerusalem. If we look at Acts of the Apostles, which of course we did, Peter is really committed to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. Paul's the one that sort of says, you know, I'm done with the Jews. We're going to leave Jerusalem and we're going to go out and we're going to tell everyone else what Jesus has brought because the Jews are just not getting it. Now, we, 2,000 years later, need to be sensitive with that kind of historic perspective because it's very easy to be anti-Semitic as we discuss what is ultimately Christian evangelism and inclusion. And by the way, Christians are not really good at inclusion. Okay? I mean, we have all had plenty of experiences 
in churches that are absolutely exclusive. That's just not what this is. Being chosen means you've got a responsibility. And if you don't take that responsibility seriously, you're not living into or living up to what God is really hoping we will do. So all of that is to say, when you look at modern Israel, they are using chosenness in a way that I think harkens back to some of the mistakes of the past, that it is a boundary and an exclusion that we've sort of figured out throughout history is, is not really the way that God wants things done. But if we as Christians have inherited that chosenness, not perhaps the way that the Jews are chosen, but in a similar sense, we are somehow, we have kind of figured something out which makes us a bit better or more privileged, and therefore we get something that other people don't get, if that's how we live our life, then it's very easy for us to support and understand, sympathize, whatever, with what is ultimately, I think, problematic in the Middle East. I will say, so many of you may not know this, my first master's program was on religious, global religious conflict. And so my, my master's thesis was actually on Kashmir, which is that space between India and Pakistan, and the way that Hinduism and Islam was used to motivate people toward violence in that region. Um, but certainly the Israel-Palestine conflict was a big part of what I studied. So I do think I know a decent amount about this stuff. And uh, 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 uh. what do I want to say? It is messy and it is imperfect. And it has not been going on for 2000 years. That is a misnomer. It, it is something people use to effectively imply that, listen, there's really nothing we can do about it. So don't worry about it. Untrue. Okay. This began in the late forties and Unless, unless you know that history, the conflict seems completely and, and eternally intractable. It's not. We can, we can help and we can solve this problem um, because it is, it is within some memory. Like we were born into it. We have people in this congregation who know that literal history. They live there and they know as a child what it meant to have that country formed and how displaced they were because of the formation of Israel. So this is not something that has been happening for 2000 years. This is something that has been pretty recent and because it is rooted in something recent, we can solve this problem. I'm gonna stop there because I don't wanna alienate anyone because of any ideas. Um, but I do think that it is solvable. Great. Let's look at chapters 29 and 30. Now that we've done that, let's move on. Okay. Chapter 29 and 30. This chap these two chapters are, hmm, I may go so far as to say entertaining. Um, so big idea in chapters 29 and 30. Jacob is getting married and having some children. 
Okay, that is what we're going to be looking at in chapters 29 and 30. So we have three parts here. The first, oops, is that Jacob meets Rachel. All right? Jacob meets Rachel. Section two, Jacob is deceived. Jacob is deceived. Section three, barrenness, then babies. That's what I'm calling it. Okay. Barrenness, then babies. Okay. Let's start with Jacob meeting Rachel. Turn to chapter 29, verse 10. Chapter 29, verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry. Before, keep turning. 29, 10. I hope that you all picked up some of these handouts. Um, if you didn't, then they are at the doors on your way out. Um, these, this is a little family tree for Jacob. So do we have, are there a lot of people who didn't get it? Anyone? No? Okay, good. So grab one on your way out. This is just meant to be a helpful image. You know, some of us are visual and it's nice to see a little family tree. It makes things a little clearer. So grab one on your way out. We're going to start with chapter 29, verse 10. A continuation from last week, Jacob is on his journey, right? He stopped and he had his little ladder moment, and then he's gone on to where Laban lives. Chapter verse uh, 29, 10. Now, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, watered the flock of his mother's brother Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. This moment is meant to echo what happened way back a generation earlier when Abraham sent his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac, right? He has come all the way and he finds himself at the well, just like the servant did. And then here comes a flock and Jacob has this moment at the well and then Rachel walks up and he sees Rachel and he's overwhelmed and he shows off and then he gives Rachel a kiss and she gets real excited. So this moment is more dramatic than most moments in the Bible. Jacob's really overcome with emotion here. He weeps, right? This is interesting because we have an odd dynamic here with Jacob. What I didn't read a few verses before verse 10, Jacob approaches the well, he sees the flocks come and he sees the shepherds come and he begins to tell the shepherds how to do their job. Remember who Jacob is. Jacob's the indoor son, right? So who is Jacob to tell the shepherds how to care for their flocks? And then not only does Jacob tell the shepherds how to do their job, but here comes a pretty girl. So what does Jacob do? Jacob single-handedly moves the rock out from in front of the well to show off to Rachel. Then he kisses Rachel. Do you think Rachel wanted to be kissed? Maybe. That's a very unusual thing to do at this point in time in ancient life, right? We're not kissing just because we think people are cute. That's improper. And then Rachel goes back to tell her dad. This is kind of like biblical toxic masculinity. I mean, there is a... 
There's a moment here where Jacob is really showing off. And that is kind of odd in the sense of the story, but perhaps it is in line with Jacob's character. I think that this Jacob is a very dynamic character. He is multifaceted. I mean, probably the only character in the Old Testament that I think is more multifaceted than Jacob is David, where there is so, it's so dynamic and so rich. Jacob is this strange person who seems to be good sometimes, bad sometimes, weird sometimes, too prideful sometimes. And this is a moment where he's kind of a mix of all those things. So he shows off, but then he, ki- then he weeps. It's weird. And so Jacob is just kind of a mess at this moment. Um, but Rachel gets real excited. Now think about Rachel. Rebecca has gone off to marry a distant kinsman. I imagine that Laban told his girls about his sister, right? They probably grew up hearing about their aunt Rebecca. Maybe they even knew her. I I doubt it the way that numbers work, Um, but they likely had heard about their aunt Rebecca. She went off and had this adventure and maybe she's still alive, maybe she's not. We have no reason to think that Laban would have known whether Rebecca lived or died but he probably told his daughters about his sister. And so here is Rachel out doing her work and runs into her cousin. So Rebecca, her aunt, is not only alive, but here Rebecca's son has come to see them. That's kind of exciting. And so when Rachel goes and runs to tell her father, I totally get it, right? I feel like we can all be in that position where Someone we knew about is all of a sudden real and alive and here. And that's very exciting. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> ready to go? Um, so the question is, well, may I ask a bigger question? How did he prove who he was? I mean, that's a very interesting question, right? You don't have IDs. I mean, it is entirely likely that they would not have known if Rebecca actually made it, let alone got married, had kids. It's possible because there's trade going on here and they could certainly have sent a message or they could have done something like that. So it's possible, but we don't know. In this situation, someone walks up and says, I'm your aunt's son, Uh, prove it. I don't know. And so, yes, you know, is there, is there this moment where he kind of shows the stuff that kind of proves that he is who he is? Um, it makes me think of, you know, one interesting question in the New Testament in Acts of the Apostles is how do the Romans know that Paul is a Roman citizen? That's never quite answered. You know, Paul claims his Roman citizenship in order to be tried in Rome, not tried over in the Middle East. And most scholars think that Roman citizenship is, would have been provable based on a thing. You know, maybe there's a a coin or a something that would not be, I mean, not paper, nothing that could be really, really damaged, but that there would have been an official thing that someone would have carried that they could have lost at any time that would have proven their citizenship. So in a sense, maybe the stuff that Rebecca took with her 
is unique enough to where Jacob could prove his relationship to both Laban and Rachel and Leah um, in the future? It's a good question. But, you know, it's, we, we are either so familiar with these stories or we take them at such face value, we often don't ask questions like this. That's a great question. Out of the wilderness, this person walks and says they're, a pers- they're who they are? How do you know? Because not knowing for sure is very dangerous, right? They could be a deceiver. Well, he is. But they could really, they could really be harmful. And I think it's important that they would have asked for some kind of proof. All right, let's move on. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, oh, I'm sorry. So before we get to verse 15, obviously Jacob has gone inside. Okay, so here we are with Laban. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So in this moment, we know one thing very clearly. Jacob loves Rachel. That is very important because that's going to be kind of the North Star for all of the mess we're going to go through in these two chapters. We don't know why Jacob loved her, how, what this was. We're told that Leah's, I mean, look at verse 17. Leah's eyes were lovely and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. If that is not kind of the most underhanded sort of verse in the Bible, I mean, Rachel is obviously prettier than Leah, right? I mean, isn't that what this is saying? Like Leah, she has pretty eyes. I mean, that doesn't that, that's how I read that verse. Like, bless her heart, right? I mean, <laughs> Leah, you know, Rachel is this like hot, great thing. And Leah has pretty eyes, right? Oh, okay. So Laban has two daughters. So we're going to look at kind of the cultural ramifications here. Laban has two daughters. Daughters are to a father or to parents, useful for one primary reason. They will draw a good dowry, right? They will draw something big from someone who wants to marry them. And so Laban is quite clear that whoever gets to marry his daughters is going to have to pay for them, right? And so I assume we all know this. This is totally normal. This is culturally appropriate in this period of time. We don't do this. I got it. But this is effectively the right way to be. And Laban seems to imply, but not quite make explicit, it's really proper that the older daughter is married first. So you wanting to marry my younger daughter is a little improper. It's not really the way we do things here. And when, when Jacob says he's going to work for Leah, I mean, I'm sorry, work for Rachel, Laban kind of says, okay, 
And we'll see what Laban was thinking in a minute. So Jacob works these seven years, and he has earned the right to marry one of Laban's daughters. He thinks Rachel. The seven years of work goes by like a flash because he loves Rachel. That is so sweet. There is something very romantic about this story that is so unbiblical. I mean, it's, it's very, you, you really don't see this kind of stuff in the Bible. This is a unique moment where his love for her makes seven years fly by. Okay, that's, that's a little unusual. Um, the seven years of work seems to indicate that Jacob doesn't actually have stuff. He doesn't have money. We know he doesn't have flocks or anything like that because he traveled by himself. So his seven years of work is actually building up savings to pay for Rachel. That is the point of the seven years of work. But we know what's coming up. Jacob is deceived. So any questions or comments up to that point before we get into the deception? Yeah. Mm, okay, good question. Question is, is the concept of time literal? Or is seven years meant to indicate something else? So, in the Bible, there are numbers that are used to indicate something sacred. There are holy numbers and there are evil numbers, right? And so holy numbers would be numbers like 3, 7, 12, 40, right? Those numbers, when you see those numbers, that's probably not a literal number. That's really meant to be heard as something sacred. In this case, we don't have any reason to think seven years wouldn't be actually seven years. However, it is seven. And so perhaps there is an implication here that he worked a certain number of years that is kind of a sacred number of years. It could be that Laban chose seven and it was actually seven and he chose seven because that's a holy number. It could also mean that it was a long time. But by saying seven, the storyteller is really implying that it was something sacred and holy. So maybe it wasn't literally seven years, but it was a long time and seven makes it a very good amount of time, a sacred amount of time. We don't know. Any other questions or thoughts? Good question. Does it mean something that the second born are the ones who are kind of, I don't want, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Come out on top, right? Um, for sure. We get over and over and over. I have a note later to talk about narrative loops, but we should, as we read the Bible, look for what I've always called a narrative loop. That's, I think, a made up term. I'm not, I don't remember what it's called. Um, but it's where storytellers use a particular skeleton, a particular structure of a story, whether or not that is literally accurate, because they want the hearer to hear something in particular about that story. So for example, did Herod want to go kill all the babies when Jesus was born? Maybe. I mean, I think it's interesting that it, the historic records really don't show that, nor 
Does Luke seem to reference that? But Matthew makes that real clear. But Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience. So a Jewish audience, when they hear the story of a big scary king wants to kill all the babies and that baby was saved from that infanticide for a good purpose, what do they hear? They don't hear, wow, Jesus is great. No, they hear Jesus is the new Moses. That's what they hear. That kind of narrative loop is used all the time. And so what we see all the way throughout the Old Testament is that it's never the person you think, right? So when, for example, Samuel goes to pick a new king, to anoint a new king, what does he do? He goes through all the sons except the baby. And where's the baby? He's not even there to present himself. He's out in the field tending the flocks. Well, bring him to me. Oh, he's the one. That's King David. Over and over and over again, it's not the person you expect. And that's really critically important. And the New Testament picks up this idea in a theological sense. Most of us don't expect that we're the ones that God wants to use, except we have a whole book that says we are wrong, that God is always going to use the person that we don't expect God will use. That includes us. That's not just people in the past. That's us. And so whenever you think you can't do a thing or that you're not good enough or that you're not useful enough or that you're not special enough, God says, you are flat wrong. You have gifts and you are chosen just as much as someone who may appear to be more gifted because God over and over and over again uses the people you don't expect to do the stuff that God wants done. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You know, we're going to get it in the next generation too, right? Joseph, he's not the one God's supposed to use. It's supposed to be Reuben. We'll get there, but that's not what happens. Okay, let's go on to Jacob's being deceived. Verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you well for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So, as we look at this scene, my first reaction is karma, right? I mean, Jacob got what he deserved. He got deceived after he had deceived multiple people to try and get ahead, to get where he was supposed to go. Jacob gets deceived. Let's talk, though, about Laban. <laughs> Laban seems to be in the wrong here. I mean, yes... Yes, in a way, Jacob deserves it. But also, Laban has done this thing that is not really okay. Think about Leah. I mean, poor thing. Not only did she only have beautiful eyes, but here, you know, her sister is about to get married. Everybody should have known that Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel likely loved Jacob. And yet her dad comes to her and says, no, it's you. I mean... What a door prize, you know? I mean, it's really not, this is not good. I mean, I feel for Leah, right? I mean, Leah is sort of this 
token moved around the playing board against her will. But Leah receives this with a lot of grace and purpose. We'll see this next. Um, I do want to make a note about how this could even happen, right? Because I think for a modern reader, we read the story and we think, what, Jacob? I mean, how could you not? I mean, you get Laban, Leah coming in. I mean, they all were in on this, right? Jacob, how do you not know that this is not Rachel? So a quick note about the way weddings work, okay? In the ancient world, it was absolutely necessary for people marrying well, right? So remember, we're talking about high-class people here. Okay, these are not the servants. These are not the workers. These are the people who are the owners. They are the wealthy class. When you have a high class marriage, the bride is absolutely supposed to be a virgin, right? We need that girl to be a virgin. And what is the point of a marriage? Remember, we've talked about this multiple times. It is to have children, not your choice. If you are a responsible person doing your duty, you have kids. You are good if you have kids and you are not good if you do not. Barrenness is not sadness. Barrenness is irresponsible, okay? This is not a modern sensibility. This is the ancient world and we need to make sure we keep that in our minds. And by the way, it's not that ancient, all right? I mean, this kind of stuff you can see when you read stories from like the early 20th century, okay? This is not, it's not been so long that we have turned marriage into love, right? And turned childbearing into something optional, right? That's really modern. We're not talking about hundreds of years. We're talking about decades. Back at this point, the way a wedding would work is the big family would come together and it would look, if you've ever seen pictures of an Indian wedding, that is much more like what this would be. Big party with tons of people and the bride and groom, they're not hugging on each other and standing next to each other. They're, they're being carried in. They are representing two ideas, right? This is not love. This is about two people having an excellent business partnership. And so because the bride would absolutely need to be a virgin, her virginity, her purity would have been on display by covering her up. She would have absolutely in that marriage ceremony and the night of the marriage been fully covered because that's the implication, that's the show of her purity. So I'll put this, in addition, because a wedding is meant to be purposeful to bear children, a marriage is consummated the night of the ceremony and it is verified. So hear me, people would have watched the consummation to verify that they are doing their job and to verify that the bride was a virgin. And I mean, they would have checked the sheets, okay? Because they're looking for a little blood. That is the point of this kind of high-class marriage, which seems a little, you know, offensive to us, but that is the way this would have worked because your privacy is not 
the ultimate good in that culture. This is a communal good, and we need to make sure you're doing your job. So it's very likely Leah would have, from the moment she was presented, all the way through the consummation to where they fall asleep, totally veiled and covered. And Jacob would not have known Rachel in any physically intimate way to have been able to say, like, those aren't Rachel's legs. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I just, I'm just saying, I mean, we, we kind of think, like, you know, you, by the time you get married, if someone showed you your spouse's knees, I mean, you probably would have been like, those aren't their knees, right? I mean, you should have, would have known. Nah, that's not really how they know each other, right? That is an intimacy that you do not get until you are married. Otherwise, everyone is covered. And if they are sisters, it is very possible, if not likely, that they really favor each other. And so even their size, their height, their shape could have been very, very similar, so this is totally plausible that Jacob would not have known. Yes. Of course it did. Oh yeah. No, this is not this is not 5000 years ago ancient. This is like 2 3 400 years ago is ancient. Maybe 100 years ago ancient. I mean, this is not an unusual way of doing things. Other questions about this? It's very sexy, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's look at verse 27. Verse 27 continues the story. Complete the week of this one. This is Laban talking. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Laban just says right here, listen, <laughs> it is what it is. You married her. You consummated the marriage with her. She's your wife. But you want the other one? Seven more years. So Jacob did so. Look at verse 28. Jacob did so and completed her week. That uh, doesn't matter. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his or wife. Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So what this little passage says is that Jacob is not willing to give up on Rachel. This is a love story. And again, very unusual for the Bible that love is this primary motivator. So Jacob works another seven years. And again, to that question, is this literal seven or is it kind of a long time that we say seven, whatever. But 14 years is conceivably not forever, right? I mean, that's a doable amount of time. And so again, he has nothing to offer except himself. And so Laban says, do another seven and then you'll get daughter number two. A quick note, the Bible never claims that polygamy is immoral. So we should just know that. There are implications around the way to do so properly. And adultery is absolutely addressed in the Bible. But this idea that Jacob would, in a sense, properly marry two people is completely legitimate. And so, no, we should not read into Jacob now has two wives as somehow a ding on Jacob's character. That would be okay. I saw a hand back there. Wow, I do not claim Rosamond's comment, 
or question, that 30 is almost dead. Okay, so I just want to make that crystal clear. That was not me. Um, so, but yes, to your point, I think that's very, that's very uh, good observation. So if this is literal seven and seven, right? So minimum, this is 14 years after he sees Rachel. She could very easily be 30. Now, it is also very possible that Rachel would have been like 11 or 12 when Jacob saw her. Remember, I mean, how old was Mary when she got pregnant and bore Jesus? Mary could have easily been 13. I mean, we, we think, we tend to default to a modern young, and we've got to kind of go younger than that. So the moment a girl can conceive and bear a child, she's ready to get married, right? I mean, that is the ancient world. And what is that? 12, 13, 14, I mean, by 14 for sure. And so at the outer extremity, Rachel's probably about 30 when they get married, which is very, you can still totally bear children, but that's for sure older than most people would have been bearing children. And so what follows with her barrenness is something that I think makes biological sense, right? I mean, the longer you go, I will never forget one of my best friends years ago got married when she was about 35, I think. Got, they got pregnant with their first child at 36 and she came back from her first appointment with the OBGYN and she was so sad. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, oh, nothing, the baby's fine. And I said, well, then what happened? And she said, I am a geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. Did you know anyone 35 and over is medically a geriatric pregnancy? And I thought, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I made sure to remind her of that regularly. Um, so, you know, there is, there is still biology, even if we are in a place where it is absolutely very common for people in their mid-30s to have their first child. I mean, we are in a community where that's fine, right? It is still, no matter how modern we think we are, our bodies are still ancient animals. And if you think around 12, 13 is when you can start to bear children, and you're thinking 35 is when you do, that's a long time. I mean, that's a long time for you not to not do the thing that you're kind of biologically made to do. Now, we have a perfectly good structure, social structure that says that's not, that is not our great purpose anymore, right? I mean, yes, bearing children is important, but we as in a social sense have taken that off number one, right? I think you may not have, but I think in general in society, we've kind of lowered that. That's real recent, real recent. And our biology doesn't catch up with our social structure that fast. Okay, let's keep going because we are running out of time. Section three, barrenness, then babies. Look at verse 31. Oh. This is so pathetic. This is a pitiful section. And so we're going to talk about it in a minute. Okay, ready? I just got to read it. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. 
Uh, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will, join, will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Leah. You know, this is such a sad moment. Um, Leah is unloved. I, there's nothing about this that can be clearer. Um, Leah is trying to earn Jacob's love by having children. Man, if there isn't kind of a, a modern moment here, I don't know what is. I mean, I think we all... If we don't know a person doing something like this, we certainly see these stories on TVs and movies where people try to give someone something in order to earn their affection. I mean, it starts, what, in kindergarten where you like, you give someone your crayons, they'll be your friend. I mean, it's, you know, it's that kind of, it's, it's not the way it should be. And we work with one another to, be a more confident, self-assured, secure person. And Leah is just, it's painful to listen to the story because Leah is just the definition of pitiful. I mean, I am just, I am, it is heartbreaking to read this story because Leah is in such a horrible place, right? She so desperately wants to be loved by her husband who, I think it's safe for us to assume she loves him. And yet he has nothing for her. But Rachel's barren. And so Jacob's having children with Leah. Four sons right in a row. I'm going to keep going. But because this whole story, I feel like we need to look at it all at once. Look at verse, I'm sorry, chapter 30, verse 1. So Rachel is barren. Leah has had four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Now we go to Rachel. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Maybe Rosamond, that's, that's kind of what you're talking about. Okay, verse two. Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear upon my knees that, and that I too may have children through her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. Okay, we'll stop there. Rachel is so angry. She is the chosen wife. Jacob loves her. She knows it. Leah is desperate to be loved. Rachel knows it. But Leah gets to bear the children, which means no matter how much Jacob loves Rachel, if Rachel can't do her job, then beyond that love will not sustain anything. Leah's going to be the winner because Leah had the children. And so Rachel is fuming mad 
and she gives her handmaiden, Bilhah, as Jacob's third wife in order for her to bear children on her behalf. What's this sound like? Come on, y'all. Who gave? Sarah, thank you. Okay, remember, narrative loops. This is not, this could absolutely be very literally true that Jacob ends up having these four wives, they have these children, fine. But do not underestimate the power of the storyteller to have told a story that harkens back to the story that you've already heard, right? Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham because she is barren. Here, Rachel is barren, gives Bilhah to Jacob, and Bilhah has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Let's keep going. Oh, I didn't put, where are my pages? Crap, hold on. I have to actually read out of the Bible. Okay, here we go. So, where are we? Verse nine. So, look at verse nine. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. All right, so we'll pause here again. Leah has four sons, can't have any more. Rachel's angry gives her handmaiden, has two more sons. Leah gets angry that Rachel has kind of one-upped her again because even though maybe Jacob didn't love her, at least Leah had the kids. And so now here, Rachel has kind of gotten out ahead of Leah a little bit. Even though it's not Rachel's biological children, it still counts in that weird way. And so Leah, who cannot have any more children, needs to try and catch up again. So she gives her handmaid Zilpah as a wife for Jacob to have two more sons. Now, Leah goes on to bear three more children. So her womb gets opened up again. She has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. Those are sons five and six for her. But she also then has a daughter, Dinah. We'll get to Dinah. Finally, look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. <laughs> and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph. So the story ends with, Lee, with Rachel having the first of her two sons. Rachel will ultimately have two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. What is interesting about the way this works is, again, like what we saw with Sarah, even though there was a first son or many sons, when the real wife, the first or favorite wife, has a son, the father tends to favor him. And so what this should set up in your mind, even if you know what's coming, Rachel finally has a son. Who is it? Joseph. Who's going to be the favorite? Joseph. Son number 11. Child number 12. And he's going to end up being the favorite. That is not supposed to happen. 
but Jacob loved Rachel. And Rachel was finally remembered by God. That opening section of verse 22, God remembered Rachel. That is a kind of turn of phrase that is used over and over and over in the Bible. There is this idea in the storytelling of the Bible that God is not aloof or disconnected, but maybe God is busy. But God does not forget. God will remember. We may not be satisfied with what God is doing right now, but God is still here. God is still present, and God will remember. And God remembers Rachel, finally. And Rachel gets to bear a child. I don't want to discount having a child means you are now worthy, right? You have now done what you're supposed to do. And this is one of those interesting stories where barrenness is actually not the guy's fault, right? Many, many, many times in the Bible, barrenness, almost every time in the Bible, maybe every time, I didn't check this, barrenness is always the fault of the woman. But this is one of those moments where it kind of seems like that is the case, right? Jacob's having all these children with all these other women, so it's probably not on him. Like, he's probably okay. We can't, you know, they couldn't check all that back then, but... Oftentimes, barrenness could very much be the man's problem too, right? When Abraham and Sarah are barren, neither of them are having kids. So even though it's Sarah's barrenness, hey, listen, what's Abraham doing? I mean, Abraham is not having any kids either until he does. So then there is that point where it does sort of show that Abraham is okay. But for most of that time, and certainly here, there's the implication that Sarah is the one who is barren, that Leah is barren or ceases, and certainly Rachel is the barren one. And this is one of those moments in the Bible where the barrenness probably really is on the woman because Jacob has gone off and had child after child after child after child, but not with Rachel. All right, we're almost at the end. Any question to make any of this a little clearer. Obviously, this is the beginning of a complex story. And I should note, since I don't see hands, that Jacob bears the 12 sons that will become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these men, these sons, really will matter to the story for a long time. This ripples throughout the entire Old Testament. Each of these sons has a little bit of a character, has a little bit of a something that defines their line, that then defines their tribe in a way that will impact how Israel forms and functions long-term for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. A reminder, if you did not pick up one of these little images, grab one on your way out. It's easy to stick in your Bible so that it's a little easy to see who comes from whom. Time's up. Sorry. Have a great week.